Well, good morning. Welcome to First Baptist Church. We are so glad that you have decided to join us, whether here in person or via the wonder of the internet. We do wish all of the best of luck to all of our hunter friends and families who are out hiding in the woods some, somewhere right now, hoping to take out Bambi or his mother. Uh, good luck and God bless. And uh, we... Hope that you're watching this sermon sometime later and celebrating Jesus. We get that Christ is in creation, but church is still important. So we hope you join us later. Um, so I, I, I want to, I am, I, I don't even know where to start with this morning's message, to be honest. I've been back and forth about where I wanted to go. I mean, I know where I'm going. It's just how do we get into it? Because I know I am well aware that Thanksgiving has not yet happened, right? I am not trying to uh, poo-poo your holiday. If you love Thanksgiving, I am not trying to overlook anything. I recognize that there was a, a great cry of, of unhappiness when I wanted to have the decorations this set up last Sunday, and, and that's not, not being hateful. I'm just saying I recognize that people had some feelings about that. And so I pressed pause, but we do have a little Christmas tree. Thank you. I love that the guy that put the Christmas tree out for me is like, yes! But there's a reason that we're doing this the way that we're doing this. Um, Nathan and I, Pastor Nathan and I, as we sat down and we talked about sermons, uh, we, we obviously months ago before we even did the last two things that we did, we sat down and we began mapping out where we wanted to go with the, the Christmas messages. And one of the things that really jumped out at me um, that was kind of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, convicting. Convicting to me was the way that we often handle Christmas passages and the way that we handle um, the, the coming of Christ and, and the way that we've really like backed that whole concept into a corner. It, it's no secret, it's no secret that Christmas is my favorite season and holiday. I, I am what you would call an early celebrant. I could, I, in the past, I have put up Christmas lights at at Halloween and been a Christmas character for Halloween because Christmas is my jam. The lights make me happy, they reduce stress, and I enjoy sitting in their warm glow. I confess to you that yesterday I put up my Christmas lights on my house and I thought for a second, you know what? Don't wanna offend the neighbors by lighting my Christmas lights before Thanksgiving, but then I thought, you know what? I really don't care what my neighbors think and so I went and turned my Christmas lights on. Because I love the Christmas lights. That being said, I do understand the frustrations that many people feel concerning the Christmas season. You know, it's one of the major themes that we see in several of the Christmas movies. The commercialization of Christmas, both a Charlie Brown Christmas and how the, the Grinch stole Christmas immediately come to mind as movies about people or things that are really upset with the whole, the whole mess of the season. All of the busyness, the focus on all of the gifts, the wanting of all of the things, the me focus that comes along with the holiday season. 
I get that. And the issue, if we break it down, that most of us have with the Christmas season is that we often make it about things that aren't Jesus. We create, we, you know, and we, we fight about this. We make this a big deal, and I'm going to talk about this. This is not the only time I'm going to offend you this morning. But we, we talk about this a lot, right? We, wanna, we, we see the world as being at war with Christmas, and we say we want to keep Christ in Christmas. But you know what? Are we any better than the world? I mean, truly, are we any better than the world? And I'm not just talking about in the way that we celebrate as families. I'm talking about how we talk about Christmas and the season as the church. I mean, think about most of the Christmas sermons. And, I, and I'm, not, I'm not saying that this is bad per se. But, but how many Christmas sermons actually end up being about Jesus? How many Christmas stories do you hear where Jesus is actually the main character? I mean, even in the Christmas narratives that we read and the way that we focus on them, you know, there are good things to focus on, right? We, we like to focus on Mary and what it means to have God's favor upon us. And, and we talk about Joseph and what a good guy he was and how righteous he was and how selfless he was. And, and that's true. And we talk about the shepherds and how awesome it is that angels came down from heaven and talked to these most base of people, inviting them into to God's space in this very intimate of moment. And, and what all that means for us and all of those things are important but you understand that all of those things only mean something because of Jesus when we talk about keeping Christ in Christmas it's not just about him being a supporting actor or one of the characters in the whole of the story he is the character it's all about him and it only matters because of him So as we delve into this, this is not explicitly a Christmas message. I mean, it is. But what we're going to do over the next six weeks is we are going to look at what I would call high Christology. We are going to consider Christ in Christmas and why it matters for us. And that should make you very thankful that Christ has come. Hey, here's the thing. We talk Christmas and we are, we're waiting for Christ to come. He did, he's still here, folks. Like when he came, he's still with us. And I get that he ascended and physically he'll return, but he didn't leave us alone. We still have the comforter. So we can celebrate Christ or Christmas any time of the year. So I might just leave my lights up all year long. As we start, I want to read two passages of Scripture. Then I'm going to back up and I'm going to walk us through them a little bit, okay? I'm going to start right at the beginning with Matthew chapter 1. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, if you would. Matthew 1, 1 through 17, it says this. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Solomon. Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, 
the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah." Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. That's some exciting Christmas reading right there, isn't it? (laughs) Put a pin in that one. We're going to look at another passage. So flip over with me to Luke chapter 1. We're going to look at Luke chapter 1. And we're going to start in verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a a town of Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. One, two pages. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word be to me fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Now, I started with my illustration and talked about our frustration with the season being that we make it all about these other things. But Christmas is and always has been about seeking and finding the Christ. Remember, a minute ago, I told you that that was not the only time I was going to offend you. Go ahead and put our graphic up. Now, I softened this a little bit because I knew that if I put it the way I wanted it, that you would be really offended. But we are going to, this Christmas, put Christ back in Xmas. We're going to put Christ back in Xmas. And right now, I'm going to give you a little bit of a history lesson. Because I believe that it is time for Christianity to reclaim the X in Xmas. 
The use of the letter X in place of the name of Christ is not some new liberal agenda to remove Christ from the public sphere. I know it seems like that because X is a way to, to, to negate something, but did you know that historically the X has been used to represent Jesus Christ by Christians? For generations this has been the case. The use of the letter X in place of Christ then is not, in Christmas, is not the result of a war being raged against Christianity in Christmas. It is yet another example of people of faith surrendering meaningful and important Christian symbols to secular culture. We did it with the rainbow. We're doing it with the X. I want to show you a picture of the word, the name Jesus in Greek. Right here says Christos, right? What is the first letter of the name of Jesus in Greek? Someone tell me what it looks like. It's an X. Of course, I'm going to have one guy say, it's a Chi. That's exactly right. Kent Wagner has the ultimate correct answer. But in English, it looks like an X. In Greek, this is the first letter of Jesus' name. It is, again, known as a Chi, in the earliest days of Christianity, names of Jesus were often abbreviated just to the first letter. Did you know this is where we get the term ichthus? Ichthus as a word is an anacronym that takes all of the different names of Jesus. If you were to break it down and to spell all of the names out in Greek, it would say Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. They are names of Jesus. I don't hear anybody ever complaining about the ichthus, that, that the word ichthus is trying to take Jesus out of Christianity. But the X in ichthus is the same as the X in Christos. Did you know, and I'm going to guess that most of you did not, the first use of X, the chi, in Christmas, the first word, use of the word Xmas came about in 1021 when a scribe trying to save space on expensive parchment paper wrote Cairo mus, first two letters. XP mus is what it looks like, which then was ultimately shortened, shortened to Xmas. In many liturgical churches, if you walk in and you look at the trees that are ultimately set in front of the sanctuary, there is a certain kind of decoration on them. This was actually true at my last church, that we didn't decorate our trees with shiny bulbs. Instead, we decorated them with what is known as Christmons. And Christmons are symbols that all point to the Trinity. On that tree, you might see a dove, right, to represent the Holy Spirit. On that tree, you might see a picture of some kind of a flame to represent the consuming fire of God. But you know what else you will see prominently featured on those trees? An X. The Chi the is a historic symbol used by the early church to represent Jesus. And I think it's important. The reason I want to talk about the X in Christmas and Xmas is this. X for us in the modern economy, what does X do for us? X marks the, X marks the spot. And for you and I, when we, we are searching for the great treasure of the season, what is the great treasure of Christmas if not Jesus Christ? So that's what we're going to do over the next several weeks 
Each message is going to have the same basic flow as far as the title, searching for something. And this week we are talking, and if you paid attention to the songs, all of them focused or had a piece that was about the same thing. The, the, the Lord and King Jesus Christ. Because one of the things the world was searching for at the time of Christ's coming, and one of the things that we need is a leader. We are searching for our King. And Christmas is all about establishing Jesus as the Christ, as the King, and introducing him to the world. Now we read Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, and it was riveting, and I know it had you all just focused in and so blessed by all of those wonderful names that were in there. Matthew starts his, his gospel in, in verse 1. The very first word in our English Bibles of the Gospels points to us what this is all going to be about. That, that this is, whole point of the gospel is to bring about a Biblos Genesos Jesu Christo. The Genesis, the book of Genesis of Jesus Christ. Now, depending on the translation that you are holding today, you could read several different words. The, the wordings could play out a couple of different ways. The NIV that I read says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. The ESV reads, the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ. The King James Version reads, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ. The NLT, the New Living Translation, says, this is a record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah. Now, there are two different places where we see different variations used in the wording. The first is where we see generations. Genesos is the word used in the Bible. The second is where we see the word Christos, Christ, or Messiah, so why the difference? What is, what is the difference between the word and is it significant? The answer is no, it's not significant. The difference in Jesus' day would have just been dependent upon what language did you speak. See, we think about Jesus Christ, at least I grew up believing that Christ was just Jesus' last name. Right? I am Jeremy Myers and he is Jesus Christ. That's the way the names work out. And so that was just his last name. All that was left was to figure out what was his middle name. And I always figured that Mary must just have never given him one, or if she did, she never got to use it because he was never in trouble. He was perfect. <laughs> but why the differentiation? Well, they're actually the same word. It just depends on whether you spoke Greek or Hebrew. Christ would be the, the word that's actually used in the Greek text, text Christos, and, and that would be the Greek variation Messiah would just be the Hebrew rendition of the same word. Functionally, they are exactly the same. And both of them point to something that we've talked about before. This idea of an anointed one. One commentary says this, Messiah or Christ was the designation of the figure representing the people of God and bringing in the promised eschatological reign. The Christ then was the one who would begin and make possible the restoration of the order of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. It's, it's the restoration of God's original plan for creation, the rule and reign and the involvement, the presence of God, the nearness of God, the creative aspect of God's work is present in Jesus. We see that in John chapter one. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. 
which brings us back to the word genesos. I think that's awesome that the word for the beginning or the generations of Jesus actually points to the genesis, the beginnings. This could be them talking about the, the beginnings of the story of Jesus. You know, some believe that this first verse is an introduction into the gospel narrative that, that Matthew is saying, this is what I'm about to tell you in these next few chapters. I'm gonna tell you the beginning of Jesus's life. Some think that it's actually talking about the whole of the gospel work. This is the beginning of God's work as if the gospels are just the start of things, which we would agree with, right? Because Matthew 28 ends with, Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all things I've commanded you. See, the gospel doesn't end with Matthew chapter 28. It continues on. Jesus is just the beginning as, as he engages and introduces and ushers in his kingdom to go out and live and grow in the world. But Christ is that king. Now, the, this whole thing does a couple of other things, though, because immediately following, one of the things that we notice is that the translators all choose to focus on the genealogy of Jesus that immediately follows. Why? Why? Why, why have this long list of names that is going to mean absolutely nothing? Like, who among you on Christmas intentionally sits down and reads all of the names in Matthew chapter 1? Anybody thinking this is a can't miss passage of scripture at Christmas time? I'm guessing not. I mean, I had to practice to pronounce all these names. And I'm guessing you all aren't doing that before you sit around the tree with your kids. Hey kids, before we read Luke 2, we got to read Matthew chapter 1. Because the names don't mean a lot to us, but it should. The genealogies can serve a variety of functions in, in the, the literary age when the gospels were written. And for us, the genealogies of Jesus serve two very important purposes. First, the genealogy of Jesus establishes that Jesus was in fact human. That he comes from a line of people, right? Throughout history, many have doubted Jesus lived in the flesh. It's one of the first heresies that developed that Jesus wasn't actually a real person, that he was figurative, that he was just a spiritual entity that, that the gospel writers pointed to to encourage and challenge people to become and move away from their fleshly desires and to transcend this plane of existence so they could become what God originally intended them to be, which is like unto Christ, this spiritual being. That didn't take long for that view to take hold. We see the, the God, and first John, first, second, and third John, that is exactly what, what John is trying to combat. This fight against Jesus being human, but we see here Matthew establishes, no, 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 he is human, I can trace him back. Luke does the same thing. Actually, Luke reverses the order. If you look at Luke, Luke following the Christmas narrative gives us a genealogy of Jesus. But rather than starting at the beginning, he starts with Jesus and works his way backwards. But both of them establish that Jesus, they give us a roadmap to validate that Jesus physically existed. Second thing it does is it establishes a verifiable line of succession to the throne of David. It establishes that Jesus is a legitimate claimant for David's throne, which was very important for David. If you look at Matthew chapter one, you'll notice in these first several verses that Matthew is very high on this whole Davidic idea. 
He mentions David no less than five times in 17 verses. A historic pattern that we see, or one of the passages we see about Jesus coming as the Messiah is found in Isaiah chapter 9. In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7, it tells us this. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Throughout the Bible, we see promises like this of a coming king who who wouldn't collapse under the pressure of societal expectations, who wouldn't be swayed by the winds of change in the world around them, who wouldn't be drawn away by sin and success in this idea of making ourselves more, but someone who would stand firm, who would hold up justice, who who would present mercy and would live in righteousness forever. And Matthew validates that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. He is the fulfillment of the promised king in the line of David. That here would come this king that would fulfill God's promise. The king that the world had been waiting for was to be born according to the line of David with connection to Abraham and that he would be Jesus the Christ. That this is the king you've been waiting for. This is the one that would bring in God's kingdom and would make right what we had ruined. Now something else important in this list of names is the recognition that Jesus is not just the Christ for the Jews. He's in fact the Christ for all of humanity. In verses 3, 5, and 6, we see something abnormal in, in genealogies. And it's abnormal for two reasons. First, the genealogy of Jesus in these three verses includes at least five women, right? Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Well, genealogies were almost always exclusively male. It was a patrilineal society, meaning that everything, everything significant passed from father to son from father to son, from father to son, and so on. Mothers really didn't have any part to play in this. They were passive, they were passive participants, but here in the genealogy, the lineage given by Matthew, women play a prominent role with no less than five of them showing up. Again, genealogies were almost always exclusively male. Secondly, genealogies generally highlighted those born into the family. I mean, isn't that the point of a genealogy? I mean, if you go do a genealogy study right now, it's not going to tell you about your third cousin twice removed and their genealogical uh, like pool that's going to add into what's happening in your family. Why? Because there's no connection to you. Well, bringing in these women, if we look at these five women, at least four of them would have been, three of them explicitly, four of them would have been considered outsiders. They would not have been considered ethnically Jewish. Three foreigners who married in. Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth were absolutely Gentiles, without question. 
And Bathsheba, as the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, had actually married out of the family. The inclusion of Gentiles sends an important message, though, that this king would expand his kingdom to include people from all nations. That from this point on, the outsiders would be invited in. That the walls of division that pushed the world to the side would be taken down. And that salvation and that the protection and that the leadership of this kingdom, that the availability and the invitation of the kingdom would go out to all people because this king would be the king of all peoples. Men and women, insiders and outsiders, natives and foreigners. We could go further if we really wanted to and talk about the fact that that it is believed just because of their nationality, but also because of Rahab's profession, that three of the women at least were believed to be of questionable character, or at least would have been at the time. And here we see the restorative power of God, not just bringing them into his family, but making them a part of the Messiah's line. I mean, is this not the dream? In our politically polarized world, I think we can all agree that a unifying leader who could find a way to make space for all people to belong, who could bring peace in the midst of the conflict that is so pervasive in our society, who could find justice and full life, would that not be what we want? Is that not what we are seeking? But Jesus is the Christ. He is that king. And he isn't just their king for some other people. He is our king. He is the king of all kings. And he is the king of all creation. Come to restore and make right his rightful world and to take his seat on his rightful throne. Christmas is and always has been about seeking and finding the Christ. And X marks the spot. It is when we find Jesus that we find the peace that passes understanding. It's when we find Jesus and allow him to lead our lives, we are able to walk the path of righteousness that he has for us. It is when we experience the forgiveness and mercy of God that we are able to extend it to the world around us, mitigating the disaster and the hatred that that so confronts us. Are we accepting Christ as our king? Because finding God's favor is contingent upon submitting ourselves to Christ. See, that's what we see in the story of Mary. If we flip back over to Luke, we we like to focus on God's favor to Mary, that, that Mary has this favor of God upon and in her life. And we want that favor. Do we not? Do we not want the blessing of God in our own lives? If we do, we've got to understand something. That God's favor isn't found because of anything good in us, but because of the gift God gives to us. God's favor is not because of our own greatness. God's favor isn't because we deserve it. God's favor isn't because of our own righteousness. God's favor isn't because of anything that we do. It's because God and his grace has closed the distance between us. And his presence brings about his favor. On the face of it, if we consider the the life of Mary, in truth, there was nothing particularly special or extraordinary about this young girl. 
I got to be honest, that, that was yet another thing that as I considered saying this week, I was like, that's offensive. How can we say there's nothing special about Mary, right? The, the one with the glowing presence, the, the virgin. That, but they're really, there's nothing special about Mary. She's just some teenage girl from out in the boondocks. I mean, truly, that's what they would have thought in that day. Prima facie, there's nothing special about Mary. Mary is introduced to us as a virgin girl from the middle of a nowhere town with a no-name family. Look at, look at Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel of Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. We, we just know what her name is and what town she's from. Now, if we look at other passages in the Bible, we understand that the people of their day did not have a very high opinion of Galilee, and they did not have a very high opinion of Nazareth. As a matter of fact, if we look at John 1.46, when one of the apostles, I think it's Philip, is invited to come and follow Jesus, Philip says, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Man, this guy's from the ghetto. He's from the hood. How can anything good come from, from that part of town? How can anything good from, come from that area in our region? Like, I, I, I just not seeing it. And here, the introduction we see to Mary is that's what they tell us. She is a girl from Nazareth doesn't really give us anything. There, there's no connection to David given via Mary here. That significant point here in Luke comes because of Joseph. Now, Mary was not just engaged to Joseph. We're going to talk about this several times. She was betrothed. Functionally, they were married. Now, that's important for us, that they are functionally married because it would have been believed if he was to move ahead with the marriage that that child was his which then gives Jesus a legitimate claim to the genealogy of Joseph, whether or not he is a biological son. What mattered in that, that culture was, does the father own the child? And if the father owns the child, the child is part of that genealogy. So legally, because of the betrothal, because Joseph went ahead with it, any child born to Mary would be a descendant of David as well. And have a legal, official claim to the throne. But Mary again, just an insignificant girl from an insignificant family in an insignificant town. Yet twice, the angel announces that Mary is favored by God. But why? Let's look in verse 28. It says, the angel went to Mary and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. We look again in verses 30 through 33. It says, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God, for you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High God. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. In both cases, the favor of God in the life of Mary is found because of the presence of the Godhead in her life. In the first place, it is found because God the Father is with her, right? Hey, Mary, don't freak out. You are favored. Why? The Lord is with you. The second case, hey, Mary, it's going to be okay. 
you have found favor with God. Why? Because God is going to put his son literally inside and with you. Is going to bring him into the world through your efforts. This should resonate with us. And for me, I find this to be an encouraging thing. That God's favor in my life should not be indicated by external circumstances. God's favor in my life is not indicated by any intrinsic or extrinsic thing that I bring to the table. It's not about my family ties. It's not about my family history. It's not about who my father or mother are. It is not about where I am from. It is not about anything else in my life other than the fact that God has come to be with us. That the king of the universe condescended and came down from his throne, not just so that he could save us, but so that he could be in relationship with us. Not just so that he could fix our lives, but so that he could integrate in our lives. Not so that he could just be around us, but, but much like Mary, so that God could live in us. Understand something. Mary is no more favored than you or I if we accept the gift of God through Jesus Christ. And God's favor from the Father only comes to us when we receive his Son. Like any gift, God's gift must be accepted. Have you ever wondered if Mary actually had an option? I mean, I would have loved to have been, you know, there are lots of things that, that biblical authors don't necessarily include. They give us some of the Reader's Digest versions, but I would, I would have loved to have heard that question. Could Mary have opted out? I mean, this was not an easy road that God was asking Mary to walk down. And we assume that because we read it in the Bible, that's the only way that it could have played out. But is it? I mean, God has placed a calling on each of our lives, right? Do we believe that? That God has something significant that he wants us to do. And much like Mary, we are to bring Jesus into the world. Is that not what Jesus sent us into the world to do? To take Jesus to the nations? And we have the option to opt out, don't we? We don't have to accept God's gift of grace. We can refuse God's favor. I don't know what God did or did not do with Mary, but Mary is in fact human, so I have to believe she could have opted out. But here we see evidence of the first person who accepted God's gift, who chose to take it and receive it. And we, we have many that refused the gift of God in Jesus Christ today, so why would we think it would be any different at that time? But we see in Mary a reminder Something that's important for us as we go through this Christmas season. If, if Jesus is going to be the center, if we are going to find Christ in Christmas, it is going to require us to receive him. It is it's going to re require us to, like Mary, center our lives on Jesus. And brothers and sisters, this is not just a Christmas reality. We should not just be putting Christ on the X of our hearts in the center of our lives at Christmas time, but we should be celebrating the coming and the power and presence of Christ every day of our lives. Because Jesus is not just the reason for this season. He is the reason for every season we're celebrating. 
What is there more to be thankful for? Like, is, the, is it really something to be thankful for, the provision of food and the provision of the things of life? If it is only for this life, Paul said, look, if we only have hope in Christ for this life, we are the most pitiable of people. I mean, if we're, just, if we're just holding time here until we eventually cease existing or make our way to our well-deserved hell, then, then there's not much to be thankful for, is there? But if God is with us and God has redeemed us and we are now able to have life and have it to the full because Christ the King has come and Christ the King is control, in control in our chaos world, is that not something to celebrate? Is that not something? Does that not give us the reason to be thankful? We already know why Christ is the center of Christmas. There is no Christmas without Christ. But we also don't have an Easter. There is no Easter holiday. There is no reason to celebrate. Easter is just eggs and creepy bunnies if we take Jesus out of it. Right? It's only because of Jesus and his willingness to be our sacrifice, the king of existence, humbling himself and dying on a cross and showing that he was king, not just in life, but also over death through his resurrection. That's why we can celebrate Easter. There is no Easter without Christmas. Let me go except farther. Really make this offensive. There is no 4th of July without Jesus. Because there is no freedom. If there is no, if there is no freedom through Christ, we are all slaves to sin. We are all bound for damnation in hell. It is only because the king has come and brought his kingdom that we can exit the death of this life into the eternity of life in Christ. Christ is not just the reason for Christmas. Christ is the reason for every season. And he should be celebrated every moment that we open our mouths for some good gift that God has given. The understanding and the acceptance of any good gift, first and foremost, comes through the recognition and acceptance of Jesus Christ. When we seek Christ and humbly accept him as our Lord and King, God begins to do an amazing and impossible work in our hearts as the Prince of Peace takes up residence in our very hearts. That when we seek him, we need not look very far because he never leaves us or forsakes us. That he doesn't just sit on some distant throne, but that God made man, Emmanuel, sits on the throne of our very hearts. The wonderful counselor begins to direct us and guide us from the inside. And the weight of the governance of our lives and the mess of our world moves from our shoulders to his. Romans 10.9 tells us that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. That is a political statement. That if you confess that Christ is the rightful ruler and king of your life, that he is your Mashiach, that he is your Christos, that he is the king, that he has ultimate authority, that he gets to decide what you do and where you go, that you will have eternal life, you will be saved. Christ is the Christ of Christmas. He is the treasure at the X that marks the spot of what we need most in our lives. 
And we find the favor of God's presence and purpose in our lives when we seek and find Christ, when we welcome him into our hearts and we allow him to guide and direct us. Christmas is a great thing, but not because of trees that we'll have up here next week, not because of family gatherings, and it's not because of presents that we, we clamor after or ask for. It's not for lights on houses. It's not for any of the symbols or the hoops that we jump from. All of those things only matter in our lives in and as much they point to Jesus, that they remind us that Christ has come. Brothers and sisters, the next few weeks moving from Friday on will only be commercial for you in as much as you allow it to be. And the question for us is, will we allow the commercialism of this world to corrupt a good and holy thing? Much like we have the X in Xmas. Will we allow the world to determine the meaning of something that is distinctly Christian? Or will we reclaim what is rightfully ours through the truth of God's word and the power and presence of our King, Jesus Christ, in our hearts. I pray that you have a wonderful and blessed Thanksgiving holiday. I pray that you see and remember all of the blessings that God has given you. But may we not get it twisted. The thing that we most should be thankful for is the Christ of Christmas. God made man come to make his kingdom open and available to all who would believe that we might find light and life both now and forevermore. God, we thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ, our King. We thank you that in the chaos of our secularized and politicized and divided world that you are the King. God, that you are not surprised by the situation and the struggles of our world, that you are not surprised by the chaos and the corruption that surrounds us, but that God, in the midst of the signs of our times, you are still our God and King, and that you are, you are here with us. You, O oh God, are the hope of the ages. And Jesus, we pray that you would help us to see you clearly in the weeks and days ahead. May we reflect on the coming of Christ, not just on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, but every day. May we be reminded of God with us and for us. May we be reminded and convinced that our favor, that your favor is only upon us when you are with us. God, help us to see the true treasure of Christmas this year. Help us to seek and find you with our whole hearts. And may we submit our lives to you, our God and our King. It is in the wonderful, precious, and blessed name of Jesus we pray. Amen.